Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, uh, listen, uh, so, so next Sunday is one of our biggest celebrations here at Fellowship of Faith um, uh, of the year. It is arguably my favorite Sunday of the year, um, contending against Easter and, 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 and other services like Christmas Eve and, and Good Friday. And for the last 10 years, in conjunction with this, we have started something here at Fellowship of Faith that began as just this little seed, and it has hit this point of swell that has taken root, um, and I want to talk to you about it today. And it's called the pilgrimage, and here's how it works. The challenge, guys, the encouragement, the, uh, the thing that we're asking you to do and challenging you to do next Sunday is this. When you come to worship here on this, this holiday called Palm Sunday, this holiday when Jesus came into Jerusalem, come here like Jesus did when he went into the city. Good news is you don't have to get a donkey, all right? <laughs> but walk. Walk to fellowship of faith. If you're one mile away, walk. If you're five miles away, walk. If you're 15 or 20, or 25, dare to walk to Fellowship of Faith next Sunday. This is the pilgrimage. And, and we've been doing this, again, like I said, for about 10 years now. And in that time, I, I'm going to tell you, here's what I've seen. There are some people who do it, and they love it. There are some people who, after a decade, still don't quite get it. There's some people I've meet, meet, meet who, who, who love it, but they don't actually realize that there's supposed to be something more going on than just taking a walk. And there's others who I've met who have done it and who have personally experienced that, that something more is taking place, but they don't know quite how to put their finger on it. You know, it's tough. What's going on in this? What's happening? And it gets tough to articulate. And I don't know where you fit in the spectrum today or if you're here today going, I've never done this before. But here's what I want to do today. I want to take a little time to talk about what this thing called pilgrimage actually is. I want to talk to you about why ancient Israel did it. And out of that, I want to talk to you about why we've started to do it. And out of that, I want to share with you honestly what I hope that you get out of it, should you choose to do it this year. So uh, let's start here. For ancient Israel, it was not walking for the sake of walking. I mean, they walked all the time, right? So one more walk is nothing really special, so to speak. They weren't just walking because it was a mode of transportation that was common. For them, it was something intentional. It was an intentional decision of intense devotion. Or to put it another way, for ancient Israel, it was a physical journey that had a spiritual goal. 
Now, I want to show you this passage that's tucked into Deuteronomy. This comes out of the first five books of the Old Testament, where where Moses is laying out to ancient Israel the the commands and the laws and the way that they're going to to operate and govern themselves and, 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 and live together as a people. And there's this weird, just little innocuous verse that's tucked in the middle of how they would celebrate and honor God with these holidays. And it says this. It says, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Okay, when? At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's unpack this a little bit. Three times a year, gather in the place I will choose. That place later comes to be Jerusalem. So down the pipeline, three times a year, on these three days, come to Jerusalem, the place that the Lord your God has set. And the question is, why? Because Israel was called to be a people. And you can't be a people if you don't do life together. So the question naturally arose as we each in our, in our ranching, in our farming, in our shepherding, and our spreading out through this place called the, farm, the promised land, some of us being hundreds of miles apart from each other, how do we get together? How do we remember that we're one? How do we enjoy each other and celebrate each other, but more importantly, come together and celebrate the God who has called us, who has chosen us as his people, and who makes us one? To say it is a great idea, but have you ever had these, these, these moments where you have these great ideas and it's like, now what do I do with it? Like, how do I make it reality? So God steps in and Moses says, three times a year, make it a minimum three. Travel to this place to be my people and to remember me through these feasts who has called you out for my plan, my purpose, and my protection. Three times a year, all your men have to go. So what about the ladies here today? Well, you can come too, all right? And they often did back then as well. But there was provisions in place because maybe your wife was pregnant. Maybe you had in a day before birth control four, five, six, nine, eleven, twenty, thirty children. Have you ever tried to travel with kids? <laughs> right? See, see, God's smart. He, he knows the practicalities of life. And so he gave provision, but oftentimes what the dads would do is, come on, family, load up the car, right? We are going to Jerusalem. And the biggest day that you see on this list, the day that stood above all other days is this first one called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You might know it by a different name, Passover. See, in Exodus chapter 12, earlier in Israel's history, the people of Israel were enslaved. They were in Egypt. They were rotting away. They were persecuted. They were trapped. And there was no escape, no hope, no way out. And it was in this context that God came and said, that's it. 
I'm done. My people are going free. And through a series of signs, a series of wonders, a series of plagues, God assaulted Egypt, trying to shake them, impress them, and rattle them to let Israel free. And the 10th time around, it looked like this. It looked like this in this series of escalating events where God told Israel, I want you to slaughter a lamb and I want you to take some of its blood and I want you to paint the doorpost of your house with it. Because when my avenging angel comes through to strike down your enemies, he will pass over you. And from that moment on, Israel would gather to celebrate, to remember that God had freed them. And they would gather and celebrate to remember that God frees still. And this was the day when Israel would travel from wherever they happened to live, some traveling hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to celebrate and proclaim the liberator God, the God who rescues the God who saved and the God who does it still. Now, you do a journey like that, it doesn't happen on one day, right? If you're traveling 20 miles a day and you live five days, uh, 100 miles away, your travel will arguably take five days. But have you ever had the road trip planned? And like your best planning worked against you because you didn't put enough buffer time in. And so what would happen in Jerusalem surrounding this event is pilgrims would start pouring in early. Maybe they walked a little bit faster. Maybe conditions were better. Maybe they wanted to get there for the pre-game event. Have you ever tailgated before? They did in ancient Israel too. Getting there to celebrate and make it an occasion, make it an event. Because my bet is this, when I start slapping Deuteronomy on the screen, and when I start talking about pilgrimage like a, a spiritual journey or a physical journey with a spiritual goal and, and a time of intentional devotion and, and, and things like that, doesn't it just like let the wind out of your sails? Is it just like, it, it just feels like heavy and like, oh, this is like, like lame, <laughs> Right? But for them, this was celebration. This was family vacation. This was liberation. You've got to get out of your mind. Passover, like we experience Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday in a church. Because for ancient Israel, Passover was the 4th of July. Freedom Day. And people would gather. And Jerusalem, man, it was alive. It was electric and energized. It was frenetic. You got to think Mardi Gras 
in your mind. Scholars estimate that this, this city of Jerusalem, which on any given day would have arguably maybe thirty to 50,000 people in residence, would swell to 500,000, some going north of even a million people, celebrating together this Passover day. Reminds me of something we used to do when I was young. When we lived down in uh, Elmhurst, we were exactly 11 miles out of the loop. And we had our own 4th of July pilgrimage on the 3rd every year to Grand Park. You ever make that mistake? No? You, you know what I'm talking about? Going down to Grand Park, going down to Lake Michigan, going down to the city right on the lake to witness the fireworks there. What would be at 11 p.m. a 15-minute drive would take us three hours to get there. Sitting on the Eisenhower, thinking you do public transportation, waiting for train after train, L after L, all to fight your way through a crowd of two million people looking for a little bit of beach space that you could stand like this. But I tell you, you got down there, and it was hot. And it was crowded, and people were eating, and people were drinking, and people were celebrating, and people were throwing fireworks into the crowd, and they were launching in the air, and there was music, and it was alive. And this is what it was like for Jesus coming in to Jerusalem on pilgrimage that first Palm Sunday. So why do we do it? And I'll tell you why it's this. I've learned it's very easy to throw around phrases like, what would Jesus do? And leave them as an intellectual exercise alone. It's easy to say things like, we should be like Jesus. We should follow Jesus. We should walk like Jesus. We should do the things Jesus does and and do the things Jesus did. But oftentimes, just leaving it at story level alone. Leaving it up here. And never actually doing what he did. And I've learned that sometimes it's important to get literal. Literal even in the most arbitrary, strange, and seemingly unimportant kind of ways. Because I've learned by doing this this thing called pilgrimage, I start to taste just a little bit what it must have been like for Jesus entering that city that first Palm Sunday. You know, kind of seeing things through his eyes and experiencing it the way he would experience it. And I found that by doing that, Scales start to drop from the eyes a little bit. And from the soul a little bit. As I become aware, I'm kind of walking just like he did. And remembering a little bit more why he walked for me. It's one reason we do the pilgrimage. But here's a second. Because sometimes you just need to shake things up. We normally don't walk to church 
I don't know your personal travel habits, but I'm going to make an assumption here that not one of you in this room on a regular basis chooses his or her feet as her mode of travel to fellowship of faith any given Sunday. And sometimes things get a little too predictable in life, don't they? Sometimes it's easy to get into such a pattern that it becomes a rut. Walking for us is different. It's unique. And it's precisely because it's different and unique that it becomes an intentional way of glorifying God. It's a way of getting out of autopilot. And I don't know about you, but I fly on autopilot a lot with God. The same seven days come every week. The same work pattern comes every week. The same household patterns come every week. The same kind of things happen every week. And before you realize it, you're lulled to sleep. And have you found in your life that sometimes you just got to shake it up? Sometimes you just got to do different. Because by doing different, eyes start to open again. Memories start to surface again. And old and familiar things start to be seen just a little bit new. There's a third reason that I found, and I think it's probably different, though, than ancient Israel, and why we do this every Palm Sunday. It's to slow things down. Because I found for myself, life has been accelerated to an artificial pace. And technology only helps me fuel it more and more. And sometimes you just got to downshift and approach things a little bit more slowly. It's fascinating, the, um, the routes that we typically walk from our place to fellowship of faith. I've been here 13 years. I've arguably driven them how many thousands of times. But you know what's fascinating? When I walk it, it all looks different. I approach it all different. I'm forced to go slowly and see things that I normally don't see. And hear things I normally don't hear. And think about things that the rush doesn't give me time to process. And I find that in that place of going slow, I have to be alone with my thoughts a little bit more. I have to be alone with my soul a little bit more. I have to deal with the things that are stirring the things that are convicting, the things that are bothering me, the things that are just left unresolved. I find in those places 
I can deal with it better. I find in those places I can hear God better. It gives them room to be, to whisper, to impress, to, to stir. I find that by walking like this, it gives me the time to set something right, to get myself right. So that this worship that I'm about to experience isn't just another quick blip on an overfilled schedule and overcrowded radar. It's why we walk. And you know what I find? It's taxing, it's actually physically taxing, which might not sound like a good thing. But what I found is there's something amazing in that. Because I find that which taxes the body also has a way of taxing the soul. We, I think, like to think of ourselves in very very bifurcated kind of ways, in, in compartments, don't we? We have our body, we have our spirit, we have our soul. But I find when I get out of theory and into reality, those lines are a lot less distinct. And I often find in those places of reality that while I can talk that way, it's really just me. In integrated, interconnected me, body, soul, and spirit together, one, indivisible me, And I find that what affects my soul affects my body. And I find that what affects my body affects my soul. Have you ever like just been like stuck, like mentally constipated, right? Have you ever just been constipated? Walking works good for both. But have you ever just been stuck? The creativity isn't there. You're bored. You're tired. You're stuck. I find no greater thing than getting on the treadmill, going outside, going for a walk, taking a run, working on something, and then the ideas just start flowing. I don't know why God designed us this way. I don't know why it is. But for some reason, body and soul are like this. And when we tax the body, we tax the soul. And ancient Israel, they knew this. There's this collection of psalms in the Bible called the Songs of Praise and the Songs of Ascent. Basically, Psalm 113 up through about 136 with some others dotted across the way. And they're called that for this reason. Because you sing these songs of ascent while you are going up to Jerusalem. They're pilgrim songs. Songs that they would gather together and sing and pray or even just run through their mind individually. You ever been on the treadmill? You ever been going for a run? I know half of you said no already before I went farther, but let me finish. Have you ever been on the treadmill? Have you ever been going for a run? And you're dogging it, and you're tired, and your favorite song starts coming on your your earbuds, or you start running it over in your head again and again, and new energy, new life. It starts to inspire. It starts to spark. It's there. Listen to what some of these psalms will, will write. 
Think about saying this one while you walk. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself in your place. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Don't you spiritualize that when you hear it? Try singing it when you're at mile 14 and you have 35 yet to go. Suddenly sounds like 121, take on new meaning. Let me read this one to you. 121, it starts like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I remember the first time my wife and I and the group that we traveled with set out from Hebron, Illinois, 22 miles away, and took a wrong turn on the way. <laughs> we left at 11.30 p.m. and walked through the night so we could be here by 8. And I remember when we started out, one of the guys in our party actually did a cartwheel. We were full of life. We were full of energy. This is great. And then mile six kicked in. And the cold started blasting off the field. And we started walking into the side wind. And we started to get buffered in the night. See, we forgot to realize that even though it's April, it's cold at 2 a.m. We also forgot to realize that things like food and water might be not just conveniences, but necessities along the way. And I remember sitting there at mile eight under this grisly old tree on Vandercar in like, like, like Barnard Mill Road, eating the last crumbs of the solitary cliff bar that we happened to bring with 14 miles to go. I remember dragging through Wonder Lake like this, tired and worn and starting to hurt. I remember coming face to face with my own naivety. I walk all the time. What's the big deal? It's only 22 miles. It's just a longer pace. And I remember actually having moments where the body hurt and the sun was rising and we were depressed, wondering how the last quarter leg was going to happen. Standing there at mile 16 with two and a half hours to go. Thinking things like I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. And while I'm ready to go down, he who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. 
Because something happens when you tax the body. Something happens that awakens the soul. And ancient Israel knew this. They experienced it several times each year. It's why we walk as well. And you know, it reminds us of something. It's meant to remind us of something as well. That pilgrimage isn't just restricted to a walk on a Sunday morning. Our entire life is a pilgrimage as well. The scriptures speak about this all the time. About looking at life as a journey. A journey with a destination. With a purpose and a point. That this isn't just existence. But that this that God has given me is going somewhere. That there's a plan in a future, there's something that awaits. And you'll see this Old Testament and New Testaments alike. The writers and the poets and the prophets talking about this life, talking about themselves as, as strangers in a strange land, as foreigners in this world, as aliens, as sojourners and travelers and pilgrims. With the, the advice and the encouragement, travel light. Travel light because the journey is long. Don't get encumbered down. Be ready to move quick because God has new things in store. Don't get so attached to where you're at right now. It's easy for me to get encumbered. I like my stuff. It's easy for me to get attached. I like my life. But am I willing to say that God is finished with it? What a pilgrimage invites us to do is through a concrete expression to remember a deeper reality. That guys, God's got something in store for you. He's taken you somewhere. In fact, he's taken this whole thing. And we walk not only to remember it, but embrace it. Guys, all of this and more is what's swirling inside this thing that we do called pilgrimage. It's what that first part of next Sunday is all about. And I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you to dare to experience what Jesus did. To experience the struggle. To tax yourself. To slow down. To do something different and intentional. To travel in community with others and to remember 
what God says life is all about. So here's how you do it. You just start. One step at a time. Maybe you're walking from your home. Clock out a three mile an hour pace and time it for 9 or 10.30 next Sunday and start at the time. Or even better, do it with others. Go to that map. Find people who are walking near you. Risk giving them a text, an email, or a call. Talk to people you serve with, people you're in group with, people you know. Because I tell you, God designed you to be in community. And on your chairs, I want to point out one more thing. We printed out something for you this year called a pilgrim guide. It highlights some of the things that we talked about today. Fold it up like this, put it in your pocket, and next Sunday, take it with you. And five times on that journey, before you start, three times on the way, and then when you hit the FOF driveway and you are ready to shout that hallelujah, remind yourself, pray, sing, glorify the God who walked into Jerusalem for me and you. And my prayer is through that, that God does something just a little bit different. Awaken something just a little bit more. And kind of impresses on you something that maybe you haven't seen yet or maybe that you've forgotten about who he is. T-minus seven days to Palm Sunday. I'd like to invite you to rise. Band is going to come forward. And as they do, let me just read a bit from this one psalm of ascent. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. Can you almost hear the pilgrims in your mind shouting it out back and forth as they traveled? In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes.